I'm Michael Smith. And I'm Chuck Osborne. And welcome to the Iron Capital Podcast. Where we break down investment stuff with anecdotes and stories that non-financial geeks can understand. Hey, this is Michael. And this is Chuck. Um, you know, this is the inaugural episode of the Iron Capital Podcast. It's a big year for Iron Capital. This is our 20th year anniversary. Wow. So we're awfully excited about that. It is exciting. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, Tuesday, March 28th. And uh, let's get to it. Chuck, what's on your mind? Uh, myths, Michael. Myths are on my mind and specifically busting myths. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to do some myth busting. Let's, let's get do into it. you remember it. that show used to be on TV? They, oh, used to blow, they used to blow stuff up. Yes. You know what? I need yeah. to let my son, my son, he's eight, Griffin, he loves to see things blown up. Yeah. So I need yeah. to let him see that show. Well, we're, we're not going to literally blow anything up, but we're going to kind of figuratively, figuratively <laughs> blow, blow, some, blow some investing myths up today. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the first one. All right. Well, the, the big myth that we have is that, um, and it's been, this has been in the investment industry for as long as I have, which is at least 30 years and probably goes back farther is that the closer you get to retirement, the more conservative you have to be in terms of moving money from stocks into bonds. And you know, the, the, um, there are multiple problems with that, but one of the biggest problems is that it ignores the biggest issue that most people have in retirement really is the biggest risk in retirement and that is outliving your money. Mm -hmm. And it focuses too much on the risk of there being a bear market at or close to your retirement. So um, we thought it was a good time because we're in a bear market to talk about can you retire in a bear market or what does a bear market do to you as you're approaching retirement if you're within 10, five years of your retirement age. Yeah, or two years. Or two years. Which we have plenty of clients <laughs> that are yes. getting close. Yes. So, yeah, so and that is, we should have said that in the beginning, This, you know, the theme of this is retiring in a bear market and then um, how to turn your nest egg into retirement income, which we'll obviously get into that. I do, I, I do still think we need to say, talk about what is a bear market so everybody's on the same page. A lot of people are talking about it. What is it? Um, before, before we get into that myth, let's talk about what a bear market is. What is a bear market? Well, technically, I mean, if you look up the textbook definition, it's going to say it's when the market goes down by 20%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, you know, it's, it's kind of like that old um, the politician was asked, you know, if he could define pornography. He said, you know, I, I might not be able to define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, with a bear market, you may not be able to define it, but you can certainly know it when you feel it. And that's really, you feel it more than you see it. Uh, you you just get a period of time where the market goes is going down instead of up. Yeah. And most of the time, the market does go up. Um, if you go back in the history all the way back to 1926, the S&P 500, 72% of the time, the market goes up. But there is a quarter of the time where the market does actually go down, and uh, we refer to that as a bear market. Yeah, and you get short bouts of down markets called corrections, which is you normally think of that as 10%. But again, it's a feeling thing, right? Like a correction doesn't feel the same because it happens relatively quickly often. Well, right. And just like in a bull market, when the, which is a market that's going up, 
you do you will get the 10% corrections nothing in the real world goes in a straight line you know so you don't just go straight up you go um, you know you take three steps forward and, two, and one step back and, and that's how it that's how the um, bull market works similarly the bear market works the same way it doesn't just go down in a straight line you can have big rallies in the midst of a, a bear market where the market may jump up five ten percent and do it very rapidly yeah uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean the bear market is over yeah in right. the average bear market, what, 280, 290 days. You have bear markets that have gone 500 days. Um, so they can they can be a very varying length, but again, it tends to be a little longer than this short little blip down like a correction. Right, right. And it just depends. I mean, we had a bear market at the beginning of the COVID outbreak, um, and that was very short-lived. That was extremely short-lived. And, yeah. and the market bounced back uh, rapidly. Uh, you know, if you go back to the dot-com uh, bubble bursting in 2000, you know, and there was a confluence of events there, which is often the case, but you had the, the tech bubble bursting, and then you had 9-11, and then you, know, you, then you had Enron and all these corporate scandals that occurred, and that was a bear market that lasted seemingly almost three years. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's no... Uh, there, there's no strict rules, uh, but uh, but generally speaking, we're talking about a market where the the long-term trend has actually gone turned downward. And I guess we need to define long-term because you know um, a lot of our clients um, will come to us when we talk about things being long-term. We're talking about like the 200-day moving average when we're talking about long-term, which really isn't. All that, that long term, long term. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but when you when you live and breathe this stuff every day, two hundred days seems like a long. It's like time. an eternity. It does. Yeah. Well, I don't want to beat the dead horse of a bear market, but one thing to keep in mind too, and this is actually important with the conversation, is they're normal and they happen relatively frequently in the big scheme of things, right? So yeah. So if you think just you know from the sheer odds, now you know if you go back in history, the we, the bear market tends to follow the business cycle, and the business cycle tends to run in five year increments. Uh, but if you just look at the statistics I just quoted, you know, the S&P 500 is up 72% of the time. That means once every four years, on average, uh, the, the market would be down. So, yes, yeah, so every four or five years, you're going to have a down market. And that's just that, that's completely natural. Um, and it's healthy. That's, it's one of the things, um, and this is probably a topic for a different day, but one of the things you really wonder from a policy standholder, which standpoint we're so set on trying to stop these things from happening that you wonder if we're making it worse instead of just allowing nature to take its course and realizing that you know just like you know winter follows fall you know and you know and then spring and then summer and then then we have fall again and winter that the business cycle has seasons as well and we just need to let them happen yeah and it and it in some ways, investors are, are, so it's interesting, right? We've gone, we, it used to be every five years you saw one of these. Now it's pushed on. We, we, the last few, it's been closer to eight, ten, ten years, right? And so investors in some ways are spoiled because they're not used to seeing it, but it also scares them more because they're not used to seeing it, and it doesn't well, right. feel as normal. Right, so you're absolutely correct. So, um, you know, in the, um, going back to the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, prior to that, uh, the the idea 
was, um, from an economic policy standpoint, was mostly driven by uh, Keynesian economics. And Keynes's theory was that, that the government could soften the business cycle, and therefore the market cycle, by um, using fiscal stimulus. So the government could spend money, tax less, and you know, either soften a recession or prevent a recession from happening. That did not work too well. <laughs> and so um, you know, Milton Freeman came along, and his idea was that, you no, know, it's not fiscal policy that can do that. It's monetary policy that can do that. So the Federal Reserve can, uh, by lowering interest rates, making it easier to borrow money, they can soften the impact of a recession or even prevent one from occurring. And that has worked in the sense that it's prolonged the business cycle. And so really starting in the 80s, we had the longest period of growth in history. Then in the 90s, we broke that record. And then we had, and that led to the dot-com bubble, which was a three-year bear yep. market. Yep. And then we had another long period of time of expansion. expansion. Yeah. And that which led to the financial crisis, which is again not just a run-of-the-mill recession, but Bubbles. but the the biggest recession we'd had since the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we're prolonging the cycle, but are we actually making the recessions worse by doing that? And I think at some point they have to take a look. Is uh, is this really worth it? I mean, it, would it be better to just have a run-in-the-mill recession every, every five, five years, years yeah. instead of having a giant crisis every ten years? Every ten years. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think um, I don't think that answer is obvious. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the myths question right. then, right? Sure. Let's bring it back a little bit. So, um, so there's multiple myths. So you can. We, I don't know if we want to go into the other ones or just you want to mostly talk about that one. Well, I do because I think you know. We're celebrating our 20th year. I've been in this business for 30 years, and almost all of that time has been helping people towards retirement. That is, uh, you know, I've always been investing money, but the vast majority of the money that I have run in my career has been geared towards retirement. And I've seen a lot of retirement mistakes, and they're driven by these myths. So the first myth is that, well, if you're young, you have time. So that's the big things like you can withstand the bear market because you've got lots of time before you retire and uh, you should just take a lot of risk. Well, that's theoretically true, but there are a lot of young people who aren't that uh, risk you tolerant. Know, tolerant. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if you if you're actually risk averse, even if you're young, and you end up taking more risk than you, you really you are comfortable yeah. with yeah. because everyone keeps telling you you're young, you need to do this. Then you run the, the mistake of you take too much risk. Eventually, there is a bear market. You see the value of your investments go down. You panic, and you end up selling right at the wrong time. So you, you sell right at the bottom of the bear market. It's always the, that final capitulation that you know, we all look for as market participants that signal the end of the bear market. And that is usually when the, those people just can't take the pain yep. anymore. And so now you've taken what was just market volatility and you've made it a real loss. I mean, you, you have now recognized that loss. It's real. Uh, and 
then it's compounded because you know once burnt twice shy no it's you're, psychology you're, it's right, like you're, all investing it's all psychology and so much of it is right oh absolutely you've you're, scarred and you've scarred psychologically and then you cannot right. take advantage of of what you should have been able to take advantage of right. over a long your life <laughs> so that and that's the that is the typical mistake of someone who's in the accumulation phase and we talk about that all the time and and rightfully so but that is the one we talk about all the time um, the second mistake that we see is, and this is kind of a myth, in that that all you need for retirement is a financial plan, and really um, that's not the case. And as you know, we talk about we do financial plans for our clients. We don't like that terminology. Uh, we refer to it as projections because that's really what it is. You're projecting a, a future. And it's a useful exercise, but you don't, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people sell it as being a lot more uh, definitive than it, than it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, but what you really need is an action plan. And we see this all the time. We see people, you know, you, you laugh about, you mentioned our clients are going to retire in just a few years. You know, we had one client who finally has retired. But for almost a decade, he kept telling me he was going to retire in three years. You know, and every year we met with him, he's like, ah, oh, another three years. And I was like, well, that's what you said last year. And he's like, no, another three years. And, the, you know, the, the, the reality there is here's a guy. He's a successful executive. He's been busy all his life. He's got a lot of purpose in his life. And what's he actually going to do? Yeah. And that's one of the things that people don't think enough about because retirement is kind of marketed as if it's just a great big vacation. It's not a vacation. It's a stage of life. And just like all your stages of life, you have to have a reason for getting up in the morning. You have to have something that's going to occupy your You've time. You've got to be productive. And your, and we as humans yeah. need to be productive. Now, it doesn't have to be productive in the same way, but you have to do something. Right. You have to do something. Yeah. Right. You have to do something, whatever it is. And the and so that's um, that's the, the you know, the other big mistake that we see people make is that they retire without a plan. And then they'll call us six months later and say, well, I'm going back to work. <laughs> and so um, so that's that's one of the, the mistakes. Uh, the other mistakes are uh you know, they don't take care of themselves. And, you know, our medical uh, complex uh, industry, whatever you want to call it today, it is really good at keeping people alive. It's not good at keeping people healthy. Yeah. And the... Health span versus lifespan. Right? <laughs> uh, no, amen. I mean, and so, and unfortunately, we have seen this with our clients, we're fortunate enough to have had several clients that have lived into their 90s. We had uh, one that lived, what, 105? 105, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, um, but yeah, when, you know, you, you have, one has to take care of themselves. And, you know, even if you've never exercised a day in your life when you retire, you better, you better start, start um, doing something. And, then, you know, we're, we're not talking about running Ironmans or anything, but you're just getting out for a walk. Walking. Keep yeah. keep your body moving because, you know, especially as you age, if you don't move it, you're going to lose it. And you do not want to outlive your health. 
you know, unfortunately, we've seen it too many times. You just you don't want to be in that situation where you're outliving your health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which leads to the big myth I think we have today is the the fourth mistake. And um, if there's anything worse than outliving your health, it would be outliving your money. Yeah. And and that's the thing that will happen to a lot of folks if they go into this myth, this myth that you know, as we get close to retirement, we got to get more conservative because we can't handle a down market right before one retires. And this, to me, is the fallacy of the wrong time horizon. Yep. You know, people think that retirement is like the it's, it's the, the goal line. That's it's, the it's, end date. It's the end date. It's when it all stops. It's right. It just we we've retired. You know, hallelujah, and now. Um, there's just this abrupt change, and um, and at that point, whatever money we have is what we have, and, and that's how it works. That's not the case at all. Um, again, uh, retirement is a stage of life. It's not a vacation. Uh, the real time horizon is one's life expectancy. We are going to be investing for the rest of one's life. And one needs to assume that that life is going to be long. I mean, again, we are living longer and longer. So the average person, when they hit age 65, if that's when they're going to retire, has a life expectancy still of 20 plus years. Yeah, most people don't realize that if you get to 65, then your life expectancy is already going to be higher than average. Well, right, right, because we talk about life expectancy being whatever, and I'm 73, you know, 73, yeah, whatever they say it is nowadays. But that includes, you know, our friends that die tra- tragically young, mm-hmm. you know, and um, the, I mean, I look back at just my my own life. Um, the first uh, friend I lost, we lost uh, before we graduated from high school. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and his name was Jamie. Jamie's, you know, calculated into that average yep. just like everyone else. And um, so, yes, every year you live, your life expectancy yeah, gets, kicked gets kicked out because you, you made it through that one hurdle. And so, yes, when you retire, uh, then the average life expectancy is going to be more than 20 years, which is an important date for us, and you know this, but this goes back to my college days as an economics student. Our professors, we used to run these Keynesian projections, uh, and they would run to infinity, and when they defined infinity as 20 years. And the reason is when you're doing projections of, from a statistical standpoint, anything you project beyond 20 years is really garbage. And, and you get the same things. And you, right. <laughs> mathematically, actually, the numbers are awfully similar. Yes, they are very, they are very similar. Yeah. Right, right. But, but yeah, what happens is you end up getting this spike, and which is not realistic. And right, it just, um, yeah, you, you, one cannot rely on mathematical models that go beyond twenty yeah. years. So. You know, in our investment policy statements for all of our clients, the longest time horizon we ever will put down in paper is 20 plus years because 
that might as well be forever. And the point of this wonky nerdy, us nerding out on this, is because at retirement, you still have this money has to last you for 20 plus years, which might as well be eternity in the way that this works. Right. And so it's, it's a constant, you are still investing. You still have to do all those things. It's not as if at this moment, the entire world changes. Right, but it also takes a lot of the pressure off because now retirement isn't just this flip the switch. It's a transition into another stage of life. And your portfolio can transition um, just like you know one's personality does or one's daily routine transitions. You don't have to just flip a switch which means that if you are retiring in 2022 or 2023 and we're in the midst of a bear market, it, it doesn't mean that you're going to be living on less for the rest of your life just because you experienced a bear market right before you one retired. And, and that's another myth that kind of comes from our industry, unfortunately, and, and what we have always felt is one of the biggest problems in our industry is that our industry has uh, become a product pushing industry instead of a service industry. And they try to solve all of these problems by creating a product that will work for everyone that is, you, know, you just kind of plug and play. And oh, we need to save for, you know, whatever. Everything turns into a product. Which is great for the industry. Yeah, if you are on Wall Street, oh, yeah. it's very nice for you. No, it is. It is. Because what happens is, if you go back before the days uh, when everything was like that, you, you had a very clear separation in the financial service industry. And, and even when I started in my career, which granted is 30 years ago now, but it uh, doesn't seem like it was that long ago. <laughs> so when I started... Um, there was a sell side of the industry and there was the buy side in the industry. And the sell side is what everyone thinks of as the industry. That's your big uh, Merrill Lynch, Smith Barney, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, all the big brokerage firms uh, that are out there that, you know, um, that people think of as being Wall Street, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the financial. And it's the stockbrokers. And so all of those big firms, especially the big national ones, they're all investment banks out of New York. And their job as an investment bank is to raise capital for large corporations. And, you know, if Coca-Cola needed to, money to invest in whatever, they would go to one of these big investment banks, and let's just say Morgan Stanley, just for the sake of argument, they go to Morgan Stanley and Morgan Stanley says, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to issue some new shares of stock or we're going to issue a bond and we're going to raise money so that Coke can build a new factory or whatever Coke is doing. And then they, they have to sell that. They have to sell it to investors. And so back in those days, I mean, how do you sell this to people, you know, in Wichita if you're in New York? Well, you had to have someone in Wichita. Yeah. You had to have an actual person. And so they would have a broker out there and they would say, hey, you know, we need to sell, you know, X number of shares in Coca-Cola because we're raising money for Coca-Cola or we need to sell this bond that we just created for Coca-Cola. And uh, 
their broker in Wichita would get on the phone and call all his clients and say, hey, uh, we're selling Coca-Cola today. You want any Coca-Cola? And, you know, and yeah. people would say yes or no. And that's how the business worked uh, for years. Well, that's all been taken away by technology. So technology has completely re- re- removed the need for there to actually be someone in Wichita because people in Wichita can just simply log, on. you know, log online yeah. and do everything directly themselves. If they want to buy shares in Coca-Cola, they can do that. And so it's, it is very, very simple. Um, and so that really removed the purpose of the stockbroker. And so the stockbroker had to shift. And that, and what they did is they kind of shifted to the other side of the business. So again, you go back in that time, that was the, the sell side of the business. The buy side of the business was investment advisors. And you know, we often um, also talk about being money managers. You know, and these were the people that would actually uh, become a fiduciary to their clients and say, okay, we will make investment decisions on your behalf. Not asking. And, and not, we're not asking you questions, but we're going to actually manage your money for you. And, um, and based on how one, you know, one would agree. And there was a clear line that divided the, you know, the advice business, the money management business from the sales business. And those money managers would also buy stocks from those yeah. um, uh, stockbrokers because that's the only way you, that's how you, bought stock. you, you could if buy you a stock. stock. That's how you got that's it. That's how you had to do it. Yeah. And so uh, technology kind of did away with the need for the, for the stockbroker. And in most industries, like, you know, the guys that make, you know, uh, buggies for horses, <laughs> they just go away or they transition to something else. Uh, but in our industry... Uh, they just kind of changed their title and they changed their title to to financial advisor because they weren't allowed to call themselves investment advisors so they called themselves financial advisors and um, they started uh, suggesting that they were giving advice what they're really doing is they're instead of selling individual stocks they're selling products yeah they're selling these products Um, on the other side, the money managers didn't mind because most money managers are, uh, they're technical people. They're not people people. Uh, they they want to stare at their spreadsheet and manage their portfolio and make those decisions. And it's just easy. I can, I, you know, I can live a life where I don't have to deal directly with clients. I can create a product with the strategy that I want to run. And these brokers will sell my product they can sell it for me. For me. Yeah. And so this works beautifully for the industry. You know, it, it really works great for the industry because the money managers get to just manage money and that's all they do. And they have these products that the, the brokers then sell. The, sale, the brokers don't have to go away. They can continue to sell something. And, you know, it, it, works, it works great. The, unfortunately, the, the one entity it doesn't work for is the client. Yeah, well, specifically, it's the worst in that moment, potentially, when you're transitioning from not retiring and, you know, saving money to the moment where right. you actually need to retire and need to live off of your money. Yeah. That's where a real problem, and that's where this scare and problem and this idea of a, 
of the endpoint really creates real issues and problems for people. Yeah, absolutely. Because what happens is, and this has quite frankly been a panic issue for our industry because they don't know how to deal with it. Um, this arrangement that they've kind of created over the last 25 years or so, work again, it works great for the industry and it does work for people who are in the accumulation phase. Because you can overgeneralize everyone's goal when they're accumulating money for retirement as making money. Yeah. And every product at the end of the day is, is going to be about making money. And so while it's not tailored and it's not perfect, one can build a portfolio simply using these products that will make people money. Yeah. And one will be allowed to accumulate assets towards retirement. The problem then comes is what happens when you get into retirement? Because in retirement, everyone's situation is truly unique. Mm -hmm. And what the industry has done is, because it's is how they've evolved and it's all they really know is they keep trying to come up with a product. You know, the, the, you know, we have to come up with a product that is the retirement product. Uh, the problem with that is that um, then it does put undue importance on that transition that moment, date. All of a sudden, becomes extremely right. important because now you're going to take your money out of all of these products that are accumulating asset, you know, wealth for you or uh, money for you, and you're going to transition that to a product that's going to pay this out over your retirement. And uh, if that is what one does, then yes, the date you do that becomes extraordinarily important because however much money you put into that, that product- Is the is, sole determinant. Is, is, right, right. It's that the is, sole determinant of what you get for your entire- Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's not, the way it needs to be. Well, that's why it's service. It's so important to think of this as a service industry as opposed to a product industry. Well, it is. It is absolutely a service. Um, it should be a service industry. And the way we do it, it is a service. Uh, but that also requires more of a direct relationship with the money manager. Yep. Because now you're talking about actually building a portfolio for you, not taking a product that's off the shelf and saying, okay, this is what's going to work for you, or even a combination of products that are off the shelf. We're talking about you need to get back to getting to actual individual securities that are income producing and building a portfolio that, um, and our philosophy is very simple, is that we're going to build a portfolio that will produce the income that you need while taking as little risk as the market will allow at the moment. So uh, that's how we do it. The philosophy is very simple. In practice, it can you have to know what you're doing and it becomes a little bit more complicated. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about the details of that, but I do think that it's extremely important to understand why if, you, if this is a service and to explain that um, the flexibility that that gives <clears throat> makes that date less important. Right, because again, if you have to transition and all of a sudden you have to buy this product, then that matters, right? But if you, if this is a service, then you can say to a client, let's do this over time. If we happen to be in a bear market where this happens, we can make this move over time. We can hold your hand through this process. 
um, we can generate, we could start generating income two to three years from now. And while we're waiting for this to happen, we could put money aside to pay you what we need to while this transitions. It just gives a level of flexibility to this whole process. Right. And I think probably the best way of, of going through that is just kind of talk, um, at least in large scale, about our history of, uh, of you know, working with people in retirement and, and providing their income. And so, you know, we have been doing this now for almost our entire 20-year history. And a lot has happened over that time span. A lot of different environments. A lot of different environments. But one of the things that's been universal until now, until right now, um, is that we've lived in an historically low interest rate environment. And this is the other problem that the the industry has, because when they create products for producing retirement income, it's always revolving around bonds and interest rates. And remember, a bond is just a loan. So, um, you know, in, in, you know, the interest rate environment will determine how much one pays on a loan. And, and that's the same thing for corporations or a government when they borrow money and issue a bond. And it, when interest rates are very low, those bonds are paying very little interest. Mm-hmm. And so how does one actually retire in that environment? And if you're selling a product, that's a big problem. For us, it was not a problem because we're not selling a product. We're we're managing a portfolio and, and doing a, a service. And the the answer was really very simple. You have to look at dividend paying stocks. You have to look at uh, preferred stocks. You have to look at higher yielding bonds. And you have to build a diversified portfolio that uh, will pay out the income that you need. And a lot of people, again, they because of this myth, you got to reduce the amount of stocks you own and 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 increase fixed income or bonds as you uh, get close to retirement or in retirement. That's just like this mindset that people have, and so they get really concerned about. Well, you have more stock even though you're re- retired. They're stock in their stock. But exactly, <laughs> you know, So. You know, you looked at two examples, and these are examples of stocks that we actually own for clients and portfolios uh, where they're appropriate, but like uh, Duolingo. All right, Duolingo is a um, language learning application. It is uh, brand new. Uh, My 12-year-old daughter loves it. She's learning how to speak French. Um, and um, she thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, this, you know, it is a a company that doesn't have earnings yet. Very, very <laughs> it's young. Very company. young company. Um, it uh, its stock is appreciated dramatically year to date. But it could also but go it, down. But it can also go down in a short year to date. Um, and then you contrast that with Southern Company. Yeah. which another stock utility. That, that we own, but it, this is the largest utility in the southeastern United Boring. States. It's right. <laughs> it pays a very low, it pays, I mean, it pays a, a yield, pay, it has a high dividend yield compared to the market out there. And, you know, when the market goes down, it tends to go down a lot less. Yeah. When the market goes up, it tends to go, go up less. Uh, no, exactly. It's and more that's, stable. And that's the thing is that, you know, just when we just use these overgeneralizations, which happens when you're just 
selling products mm -hmm. is that you know a stock is not necessarily a stock mm -hmm. and, and and one stock may be very risky another stock may be as boring and safe as a bond yeah better than safer than many bonds. safer than many bonds <laughs> yeah. um, at least over the last 20 years or so yeah. and so uh, so that's the thing that we do when people uh, retire is that we're building a portfolio that will actually uh, produce um, their yeah. their income and so we've done that and for most of the time like in the financial crisis for example in the financial crisis our income producing portfolios uh, performed extremely well Much relative the to the market because these are the safest yes they're mm -hmm. stocks but they're the safest companies out there they're paying a dividend they are not in any financial distress whatsoever yeah. and the and so it weathered that storm extraordinarily well. Same last year in 2022. S same thing happened in 2022. You're absolutely right. Um, our income uh, portfolio did extraordinarily well. That was not the case, however, in COVID. For, for, for the COVID situation. Right. Because, you know, these again are going to be very safe, stable companies. Uh, but and people are investing in these companies not because they're going to grow, but because of the dividend. And no one ever foresaw an environment where the government's just going to shut everything down. Yeah. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, these dividends that appear to be extremely safe—the one time maybe they weren't—may uh, may not exist yeah. because the government's literally shutting yeah. everything down. And so. Uh, that was a period of, of distress uh, for our strategy. And we had to very quickly shift gears. But we have the flexibility. Again, right. this is a service, not a product. Right. We have the flexibility to uh, do what we need to do there. And right. so we made significant changes. We made, uh, yeah, absolutely. We made significant changes. And we also recognized, because that was a bear market, and in all bear markets, as painful as they are to go through, that is really where the best investment opportunities arise. This is when you get opportunities. And even when you're in retirement, you can still invest and take advantage of those opportunities. So what we did is that we, um, you know, we traded out, you know, utilities and phone companies and, and things like that for things like Apple. Apple. And Home Depot. And Home Depot. <clears throat> and you other high-level financial companies that are that right. unbelievably high quality that you could get yields that you couldn't have gotten for generations. Right. And and they do pay dividends. Uh, but it's a much smaller dividend than we normally are, are excited about. But these are extraordinarily high-quality companies. And they were the first ones to bounce back. Yep. And, and that's how one recovers. And once we got our portfolio levels and those back to where they needed to be, then we shifted again and said, okay, now let's move back into those right. safe dividend paying names so we can again get be, be where we want to be there. Right. Because again, it's a, it's a service and it's an ongoing service and we're monitoring it uh, constantly and it's going to shift. And now that you know interest rates are going up, we've added more bonds yeah, to those. Bonds have become a larger uh, portion of those bond, portfolios. Because bonds are, are more attractive once again. So you know that is what one can do when you um, when you're actually approaching this business the way that we think is the right way, which is that it's supposed to be a professional service. Yeah, it's supposed to be a direct relationship with the people who are managing your money, and 
um, and you know to have the ability to navigate through the various stages of life as well as the various stages of what's going on in the financial markets and um, and what we're allowed to do. Yeah, and we've, I think this is the time we've got to talk about a cautionary tale and a public service announcement. Um, when you create a portfolio like we do, and it's paying those dividends or income, those are fully liquid, and you can use that if you need it. So if you have an emergency or something comes up, that money is there for you. Right. You know, what ends up happening in these, what are frankly scary times for many people when you're in a bear market, is um, the sales of annuities um, go through the roof because people are scared, so they buy these guaranteed products. And you see it out there. If you look it up, you'd see that more annuities got sold last year than had since the great financial crisis. And that's what happens every time, and these are the... They're, they're frankly products of mass destruction in a lot of ways, but why don't you talk about that for a second? The problems with annuities, um, the issues that happen, and why you have to really be careful and steer clear of them, especially when you get <laughs> scared like this and you see them out there, why it's so important to discuss. Right. Well, I think the first thing to say about that, and I, I want to be very clear, because we live in this day and age of uh, people having extraordinarily strong opinions about things that they don't bother to actually learn anything about. <laughs> and uh, so um, just briefly in my background, and one of my you know, previous lives, I actually worked for the Life Office Management Association, which is an educational association within the insurance industry, life insurance industry, and I was in charge of their um, annuity and retirement products and services. So I was the content editor. Um, I was partnered with uh, people who actually knew how to write. Writers. <laughs> and, uh, but knew nothing about annuities. Mm -hmm. And the, we worked together as a team to actually write the annuity textbook. You're an expert. Uh, so <laughs> I, I know a little bit about annuities. And um, and my current opinion on annuities is not has not always been my opinion because I was like a lot of people who kind of approached annuities from an academic standpoint. Uh, they work great in theory. Uh, the problem is we don't live in theory. We live in the real world. And in the real world, annuities are egregiously priced. Uh, they come with clauses that that verge on criminal. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and you know, we've seen this in real life events. A lot. I mean, and I'm not going to pick on any one particular company, but I remember uh, for one of our institutional clients years ago, their vendor was an insurance company and they were trying to add an annuity feature into the retirement plan. And we were asked to, you know, read, you know, to, to research it. And we, you know, read the contract. Which, by the way, is as thick as the Bible. Right, which no one does. I mean, including yeah. the guys who sell it. Yeah. Nobody, you know, and I just had, last week, I had two people from an insurance company in here, and I just asked them straightforward, as like, have you ever read your contract on your own annuity? And both of them kind of sheepishly looked at me and went, well, of course well, not. Of course not. Well, <laughs> have, you, have you ever tried to read one of these things? Yeah. But if you do read it, what you're going to find out is that there was all these promises made. And, you know, and so this annuity, like a lot of modern annuities, um, you you could invest in a in a, a you know mutual funds that are inside the product. They're really insurance separate accounts, but uh, you know, uh, like a mutual fund. they're like a mutual fund um, inside the the insurance wrapper. 
and then they would have guarantees. So they would guarantee uh, that you know if you hit a certain high water mark, that you would never have a value that goes below that high water mark, no matter what happens in the market. It sounds so wonderful. And um, but here's the thing: when you read the contract, what you found out is that if you ever take the money out of the annuity, um, all of those guarantees are gone. Are gone. You've paid for them for years. You've paid egregious sums for them. Fees, yeah. And they and they disappear as soon as you take your money out. Um, and when you do take your money out, it you just get what the actual market experience, which is going to be markedly worse than yeah. it would have been because you're now paying three to four percent three to a fee most likely right. most likely a three to four percent on a product you should have fee. paid a percent on maybe maybe less well you're paying three to four percent you know actually you know and we had this conversation years ago with a hedge fund manager um, and you know he calculated that it was seven basis points well I which meant, is I meant just so, the fees of the underlying funds. <laughs> oh, well, right, part, right, right. But the actual insurance cost, so the, yeah. the value of an annuity, yeah. if you actually were to uh, recreate it yourself in the, um, the options futures market, uh, would be about seven basis points. At least that's, that was his estimate. Um, and so, and seven basis points is... 0.07 of a percent, or you think about like if a percent's a dollar, that's um, seven cents. And the uh, so you know you have something that's worth seven cents, and they're selling it for four dollars. Uh, something's wrong. Yeah. And uh, you know this is um, you know it really it, it it is one of the most egregious. Um, issues in our industry there is uh, we really rarely 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 ever say the word never uh, but one should never buy an annuity yeah I mean at the end of the day what happens is the only thing you ever get is the guarantee at that's the only thing you would ever get three or four percent right when you look in a history of these things and actually look in people's experience you 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 can get a three or four percent return on these right. things and you lose absolute all ability to use your principal. So you cannot use that principle in most circumstances. Right. So it's just not, it's a, it's a very poor product. It, um, it is. And we also know for terms, just from real world experience, because, uh, you know, we've seen countless clients come in here, um, that will have an annuity that they purchased, you know, five, 10 years ago. No one is happy with Every it. single one of them. Well, it's, it's, I mean, the phrase we hear all the time is the biggest mistake I ever made. I put all this money in there. There were all these promises made, and now none of those came true. Yeah. So. And that and that is that is what it is. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. Yeah. All right. We've uh, we've been. Thanks you for listening to our first podcast, and uh, we'll be doing it more often. Sounds good. Bye bye. Capital Advisors is an independent registered investment advisory firm headquartered in Atlanta with clients nationwide. Learn more about us at ironcapitaladvisors.com. The Iron Capital Podcast is produced by Iron Capital Advisors. Our awesome original theme music was written and performed by Michael Smith and Leah Calvert. This content is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or advice. Clients and employees of Iron Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed. Please like and subscribe to the Iron Capital Podcast on YouTube.
YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with another episode 